0: and welcome to the History Hotline, the hottest line for all things black history and beyond. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 72 of the History Hotline. My name is Diana Lynn Cook and today's episode will be about the black and white minstrel show which aired on the BBC starting in 1958. We'll also be thinking about the history of minstrelsy in general, blackface, Um, And where it all came from and why it was so popular, for want of a better word, Um, in the 1950s in Britain, within the context of newly arrived people from the Caribbean and a newly kind of integrated or trying to be integrated society in the post-war era. Why was a show that essentially had white people blacking up their faces, dressing up, dancing, singing and pretending to be quote-unquote black people Um, why was it so popular in the late 1950s, 60s, running all the way until 1978 so for 20 years the BBC's black and white minstrel show attracted audiences of 16 million um, at its peak its spin-off shows broke records and in 1961 it also received critical acclaim, winning an award called the Golden Rose of Montreux um, which I think now or was the award name was changed into the Rose Dior, um, and that was an international award um, for broadcasting and programming, where the Black and white minstrel show literally won. Um, fun fact, the likes of Lenny Henry um, appeared on the show in 1975, highlighting the lack of opportunities for black performers um, when the only start they could get was an honor show that essentially caricatured and poked fun at black people there were many critiques and criticisms of this show however it did run for 20 years as i said and the variety of complaints have been logged and archived within bbc broadcasting's archives and it's a very interesting story to think about and to tell especially today where You know, there's still so many instances of people doing blackface or engaging in it or, you know, people in positions of power and influence now, images of them doing it in the past come to life. You know, think about why it's offensive, why it may not be offensive to everyone that's black um, and what it all means in regards to race relations in the late 1950s. So I thought we'd start with a history of um, blackface minstrelsy and where it comes from. And I don't think you'd be surprised to know it comes from America, but I think you might be surprised to know that it was actually the first theatrical form that was distinctly American, minstrelsy. Now, you might be thinking, how is that possible? Well, obviously, America was colonised by the British, um, and also parts of it um, at points had occupation of the French, Spanish, um, and many other European colonial powers at the time. So everything cultural-wise, especially, obviously, theatrically, came from traditions of Europe. And so this was the first theatrical form that was uniquely American, which is really scary because the premise of it is mocking and characterising and stereotyping black people that would have been enslaved at this time, because this is during the eighteen. 18- 30s and 40s, where it was at its height of popularity. This is a good 30-plus years before slavery is abolished in the United States. So to think that their first theatrical form, true to them as Americans, um, was something like this, um, for me, says a lot about the foundations of America as a country when you think about race. Um, But maybe I'm I'm putting too much on that. Minstrelsy had strong racist aspects and undertones. However, some may argue that it gave Americans, white Americans, this weird, distorted, incorrect look into aspects of black culture in America. That's the flip side of the argument that I've heard when we think about the origins of minstrelsy. I think it's nonsense. Because... I don't see how white people blacking up their faces, whitening up their lips and their eyes gives that white other white people an insight into quote unquote black culture in America, when white people are actually just pretending to be black in a weird way, in a performative way, in a theatrical way that is meant to entertain. Um, not, it's not known for its accuracy. It's not known for its, like, authentic depictions. Um, but it was in this early part of the 19th century where black grease paint was used um, in order to depict plantation slaves um, and also free black people in America as well on the stage. These representations were obviously not flattering, um You know, they played on caricatures and different stereotypes of black people. Those included the Mammy, Uncle Tom, Buck, Jezebel, Jim Crow, who we'll get into later. Um, And they became kind of part of the American imagination in a sense of these were the representations of different black people. And these carried through into entertainment, into film, films like Gone With The Wind. Um, you know, all of these stereotypical characters can be seen in films to this day. You know, the Mammy. I'm thinking about... I'm thinking about Tyler Perry's Medea character, um, which is obviously done by a black person, but even outside of film, um, Aunt Jemima on a bottle of maple syrup. The Mammy caricature, the hypersexualization of Black women in, um, like the rap industry in hip hop in, you know America, is kind of following on that Jezebel stereotype, um, and it goes on, it goes on and on and on, um, and these are things that were, set in place through minstrelsy, whilst the majority of Black people in America would have been enslaved, um, so having very little to do with, the stereotypes that were going to govern their lives for decades and generations following. Um, At this point, there's this backdrop of of racism, of systemic mistreatment, the dehumanisation of black people as chattel, and then they were also now being mocked on stage for entertainment. And it simply pushed an agenda that African-Americans, black people in America, were inferior in every way. And this is what that show did. And continue to do. The kind of cartoonish, dehumanising tropes. um, That still, as I say. You know, managed to creep into American culture. Existed from this. And so, it's very important to understand it. But then when we think about how that came to Britain. Blows my mind. Blows my mind. The connections are crazy today. Anyway. I didn't want to spend too long in America because I think the last few episodes of this podcast have been largely American-centric, very America-heavy, um, which some of you don't mind, but I know some of you really do like um, thinking about Britain and all the things that you might not have known that were happening in Britain. Um, here's one of them. So, blackface minstrelsy in Britain. How did it get to Britain? Now, what I will say is that White British people and the way that they understood black people was much different to the way that white Americans thought they understood black people because of slavery, main reason. And this is because in Britain, slavery was largely within the Caribbean colonies. Slavery on British soil was in very, very small numbers, whereas in America you know, all American slavery was on American soil. Yes, it might have been in larger numbers in the southern states, um, in the cotton-producing states. However, compared to Britain, you know, it was, it was widespread, we could say, in America. But in Britain, you know, you weren't going to necessarily see an enslaved person every day. Whereas if you lived in some parts of America, you definitely would. Um, and that being said is something to keep in mind because... The agenda that minstrelsy Rossi was pushing, which for me was one of black people being inferior, takes on a little different, a different role slightly when we think about it in Britain because white British people aren't necessarily only seeing black people in Britain in inferior positions and enslaved. And that's not part of their daily conscious, you know, understanding of blackness. Whilst there would have been some kind of superiority due to empire um, and colonisation, It would have been a lot different to the understanding of race in America. So we won't try, we'll try not to conflate the two. It's very difficult not to, um, but important, I think, in this topic especially. So you might be thinking, well, how did minstrelsy end up in England? Well, it was in 1836 that the first person to bring it to England was an American man, of course. His name, and in inverted commas, it was Daddy. I don't know who he wanted to call him daddy or why. I don't know why it was his name. Thomas D. Rice. We will be calling him Thomas today on this podcast and nothing else. Um, and yeah, that was 1836. So, you know, in its peak in America, um, this man who was actually quite quite the man in terms of popularising it in the US as well, Um, actually toured with it um, and at this point came to Britain and it appeared in two minor theatres, the Surrey and the Adelphi. And, you know, whilst it was here, it was obviously quite popular, it stayed a while, um, and people would have enjoyed the minstrelsy. And now you might be thinking, well, what was there to enjoy about it? But it really was quite a popular show. Um, And the TV show itself, which we're going to get to, was, as we said, even more popular. Now, the kind of Jim Crow character was popularised by Thomas D. Rice. um, And it gave this perception that African-Americans were... And African-Americans, because that's who he was like caricaturing. But then, when it comes to Britain, he's still caricaturing African-Americans. But... It's just black faces or white people doing black faces. So when British audiences watch it, do they watch it and think these are African-American people or do they think these are black people more broadly? We see black people on our streets doing X, Y, and Z. You know, you've got to think about how that would have been um, thought of and understood. So this idea of this Jim Crow character, lazy, untrustworthy, dumb and unworthy of integration. Um, and definitely, you know, not worthy of being a free man. Um, Rice's performances popularised minstrelsy and also supported this stereotypical depiction of a variety of characters, including Jim Crow, who was lazy, untrustworthy and dumb. Now, there were other characters that, you know, as we've mentioned, portrayed other aspects, negative Um, stereotypes of what quote-unquote black people could be like or were like, supposedly. Um, So these kind of racist overtones and ideas continued to manifest in each character and in turn, for white Americans, it created a negative image of African Americans um, and then this was transported over to Britain. So following um, Thomas Rice's show... In 1836, which was quite small, it was kind of, um, well just him really and and others obviously, but um, it wasn't a big troupe. The first fully fledged minstrel troupe appeared at the Adelphi, again in London, in June 1843 and this was Dan Emmett's Virginia minstrels Um, and they were, and I quote, billed as the only representatives of the Negro that have appeared in this country. So, this idea that for the first time ever in Britain, there was going to be a representation of, quote-unquote, Negroes. Wow! Um, This was untrue, partly because, as I've mentioned before, there was Thomas Rice's smaller shows in 1836. Also untrue, because there were actual black performers, like black people. This included Ira Aldridge. Um, I've done an episode on him, episode 22, I believe. Um, he was an actual black performer. He was actually um from America as well. He played Othello um and had played other roles within Shakespeare um Shakespeare's plays, sorry. um and you know, he was said to have dignity and grace um and was really hyped by uh, playbills at the time he ended up having a career in Europe um and outside of um Britain in the end. But you know, these performers existed. Um, and Ira Aldridge wasn't the only one but Dan Emmett's Virginia Minstrels were billed as the only representatives of the Negro um, that have appeared in this country which again is this kind of idea of American superiority as well over the British in a weird way, like they've created this really dark and ugly art form call it theatrical, called it entertaining and now are shipping it out all over the world and telling the rest of the world that they will never ever see anything like this because they don't even know Um, what black people look like or who they are and that is definitely an exaggeration by the way but you know that was the kind of potential motivations behind it all anyway there was also um, a difference at the time when we're thinking about the 1840s Um, by then in Britain slavery would have been um, abolished I say abolished very loosely because um, 1833 it was abolished However, there was a seven year period of apprenticeship um so many enslaved people in the Caribbean were not actually freed for seven years after um and but regardless, America was eighteen sixty five so even you know longer afterwards, which meant that Britain then in turn had this superiority complex over America because obviously Britain, and we've gone through this many times, Britain liked to think that they had abolished slavery because they realised how morally corrupt it was and, you know, they found the Lord and realised it was a terrible thing and wrote songs like Amazing Grace and, you know, asked the Lord to forgive them for their sins because slavery was so terrible, obviously, you know, whilst paying off all those slave owners, all that money because it was just so morally bad, we couldn't just end it, we had to compensate them. Um and so when that happened, America obviously still have slavery and they're having quite deep and concerning wars and conversations about not abolishing it or abolishing it Um, and you know British people with their moral high brow would have been looking down on America like oh you know you've still got that uh, uh, morally corrupt institution of slavery Um, so there was that as well Um, the differences as I mentioned with the fact that there was slavery on American soil in larger numbers than in British Um, soil was the fact that a lot of the um, enslaved people that were brought to Britain were young black boys um, and they were used as page boys or footmen and it was very fashionable in the kind of higher echelons of society to have a well-dressed black boy um, in your cart, in your carriage, in your home or a footman Um, and there was a social air to that Um, and you know I think Whenever I think about um, slavery on actual British soil, I think about it in that kind of way. Um, Children in the house um, helping out in that kind of way. Still enslaved, but not as grotesque, not as visually violent as a black person working a plantation, a tobacco field, a cotton field, a cane field. It's a very different image of it. And I think that then changes the perception that British people have of slavery in comparison to their perception of American slavery and the perception Americans then have of slavery. Um, In 1771, so this is pre-minstrelsy arrival in Britain, there would have been about 14,000 to 15,000 black enslaved people in Britain. Um, This number would have increased by the runaways uh, from the West Indies and also black soldiers that fought in the American War of Independence um they would have found themselves potentially on british soil but their numbers were really small um in comparison to the us where there would have been hundreds of thousands of enslaved people um so by the 19th century the early 19th century um when minstrelsy is happening and these shows are going on in britain um, Black people that would have been there having, you know, been freed from slavery, formerly enslaved, Um, they would have been, and they were popularised, looking back as beggars, street entertainers, prize fighters, and in the kind of lower, the lower portion of society, um, unless they had newly arrived, um, you know, as having already had a career or something else coming from other countries, not necessarily the Caribbean, um, because those people would have been formerly enslaved. Obviously, not all of them. There were free black people in all these places. Um, But in artwork that black people are portrayed in of that time in Britain, they are portrayed as, quote-unquote, low life, um, and they were pushed into obscurity. There were also minimal numbers of black women, So it meant that there was little chance for children or relationships or community building, which we see, you know, fast forward into that post-war era. Um, Also, the conditions that um, many of the previously enslaved people were living in in Britain didn't really suggest that they were going to be here for a long time. The standard of living was poor. Um, You know, their conditions were inadequate and... Men, if, mar- if they did marry, would marry into already mixed populations of some of the poorest city districts and they kind of, again, disappear into obscurity. Um, the feelings towards black people because of this in Britain was a lot different to in America where you start to see um, formerly enslaved people buying their freedom, growing some and accumulating some wealth and becoming, you know, the free, coloured echelon middle class of society in some ways um still lower than their white counterparts but um still shaking up the show social strata a little bit more than they would have done in britain i think that causes less resentment in britain blackface grew and minstrelsy grew throughout the london dockland areas because all it takes is one one performer to bring this style of performance for it to catch on Um, And in the 1850s and 60s, there were scatterings of black riverside workers um, around the London Dockland areas. um, And there was a blackface act on nearly every bill, every playbill, throughout the 30-year history of Wiltons, which was in well square. So you can see these trips from America start something, blackface becomes a thing, minstrelsy becomes a thing, it catches on. Even though it's not always as theatrical, with the singing and dancing and costume, um, you know, it took on different forms in terms of comics. In 1850, in the 1850s, um, you could also see black people in human zoos um, in Britain or on display. Examples of this are the people of the Zulu, ethnic group or tribe on display, other people that would have been classed as exotic people from around the world displayed so that British people could see, you know, the exotic side of the world and all the difference that exists. Um, Obviously very crude, very disgusting, um, very predatory as well. Um, But it just does highlight at this moment in the um, late 19th century this curiosity towards black people um, that I'm not sure I would go as far as saying is rooted in superiority in Britain, but there is a weird fascination and fixation on black people because there's believed to be this big difference between them. There's believed to be um, a kind of wonder as to, to what these people are really like. You know, are they as written about? Are they savages and uncivilized? Um, and so this means, and I think I've stressed this point enough, but it means that I think British people saw then blackness and black people and this quote-unquote theatrical art form very differently to the way American people did, because I think America, I believe American people created it to mock, um, to jibe, to poke fun at in the most kind of cruel and sadistic way already enslaved people. Um, that were black, whereas in Britain it was kind of handed over and when we now think about the black and white minstrel show that started in 1958, the cri- the criticism it received and the response to that criticism shows this massive just disparity in the history of what happened. It's like a dissonance, like as if the history of it in America did not exist and British people were shocked as usual, that anybody could ever say this was racist because they had not placed minstrelsy and blackface and all that, you know, in its quote-unquote theatrical art form as being offensive in any way. Um, And so here we are at the point of 1958, a big leap forwards to think about the black and white minstrel show, the backlash it received, um, and how it managed to go on for 20 years. The Black and White Minstrel Show ran from 1958 to 1978, created by a man called George Mitchell, um, who literally on his like, if you Google him and then the little bio thing that comes up about him, it like says, George Mitchell would be a Scottish musician, blah, 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 blah and was known for having devised a long running show, the Black and White Minstrel Show. So that was his claim to fame in a way. And we won't get too much into george mitchell for now he was he took a somewhat popular theatrical form and ran with it um the information in the next kind of few minutes of me talking um have been from historians um david hendy christine grandy and michael pickering um i've been reading their variety of words on minstrelsy in britain and the um black and white minstrel show itself more specifically um and their work is really 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 informative and i didn't know too much about this topic before deciding to do a podcast about it so if you know this is a place where you're thinking you want to do more study on this or read more about it they're the people to start with Um, christine grandy having written the most recently um, so maybe starting there and, and going backwards um would be super helpful um she looks at kind of tv more widely Um, as well, which is really cool um, because, yeah, TV's great and you know me, I like my TV especially Desmond's Um, but don't you think it's just so interesting you've got a show like Desmond's representing black people in arguably a very authentic way done by black people with black people having their hands in the writing room and the acting and the storylines and then you have the black and white minstrel show which is white people blacking up their faces in order to be these versions of, of black people that they've decided fits them um it's kind of seen as a well I don't know I see it as a very 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 big stain on the BBC's broadcasting um history um and I think in hindsight they do as well but the kind of like doubling down they did once it was met with um you know this is offensive this is racist we don't like it is insane to me. I did not think, having, you know, thought about a show like The Minstrel Show, I thought, ah, it started, people thought it was a good idea, maybe had a little run, and it just went out of touch and out of taste with people. But it really, you know, took a battle. Um, it ran for 20 years, which is, like, majority of my life. Um, as in not... I wasn't alive in 1958, but, you know, I'm just over 20, so... Um, yeah, like, that's a really long time. I feel like I've been alive for a while. Um, even though no, I haven't, but still. Not the point. Um, they just were not seeing the show as racist. This is the, like, fundamental issue with why it carried on for so long. Um, May 1967, the group CARD, Campaign Against Racial Discrimination, they submitted a petition for the show to be axed. Um, this went into a back and forth between the BBC Board of Management. Um, their like, head of publicity decided to use a daily mail to figure out the public's general view of the show and decide whether it was unfavourable, distasteful, racially offensive, blah, 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 blah. Um, and they came to the conclusion that the programme was not racially offensive. Um, now, 1958, when it started, just to, just to take us back there, um, two weeks before the Notting Hill race riots, Um, And you know Subsequent violence That followed 1967 We're deep into the 60s Where You can only go back And look through The back catalogue Of this podcast alone To see some of the Serious racial tension That was existing And occurring in Britain And how people didn't think That this show Was adding to that In any way Is quite scary to me Um, And it just shows This dissonance This Dislike connect from this hit, these really deep-rooted histories of racism and this trauma that black people would have felt about something like minstrelsy and blackface. And then, you know, the deep-rooted violence they were feeling now in places um, all across the UK because of their recent migration in the postal era. And then this show that the BBC were kind of just playing off as like, well, if you don't like it, You're a bit of a killjoy, really, and that's it. And that was, you know, the term used. You know, you just, oh, take a joke. It's not that serious. It's not racist. It's just a bit of fun. Well, I don't think so. Anyway, the kind of only, like, determined voice of opposition within the BBC was the corporation's chief accountant, Barry Thorne, who spent a lot of time in the BBC New York office and so had seen large aspects of the civil rights movement and sent a memo to the Director General Chief Assistant Um, and all of this is in the BBC's Written Archive Centre which I think is really cool that the the BBC hold all this and you know we can kind of see this discourse that followed Um, and in it he said, this is Barry Thorne as you may know I previously expressed my dismay about the continuance of the black and white minstrel show the current protest that was happening in New York at the time has renewed the passions. He wasn't about it. He didn't want it to carry on. Um, there was, I think, him understanding America and the situation that was happening there clearly showed him why <laughs> this was a problem. And when I think about this disconnect to America um, and what was hap- what had happened there and why minstrelsy was even a thing, I wish there was more of a connection so that they would have understood a bit quicker. Um, the issue was, it was... The BBC, one of the BBC's most popular TV shows, sixteen million people were tuning in to view it. So you know it was obviously profitable for them. Why would they turn it off? It was probably easier for them at that time to kind of just pass off any um, dismay or calls against it as as people being killjoys and oversensitive. Obviously, it wouldn't be the same now. As I mentioned, card campaign against racial discrimination. Um, put out a petition calling for an end to the um, variety show, the black and white minstrel show. Um, And it was a variety show, and it was also part of the royal variety show. Like, minstrelsy was part of that too. You know, they really thought it was okay. It was just fine. You know, these white actors doing blackface, dancing, singing, it was okay for them to do that and to continue on. Now, the petition was signed by around two hundred people um and you know it got a, it got a response from Kenneth Lamb, who was the director of public affairs as i said um and quite a an immediate response um because you know as I said it was one of their best accepted t v show and the response and it's being taken obviously from that letter that I mentioned that um was put out um and I think the response for me is, is very, very interesting, to say the least. And there's a chunk of it that um, is used in Christine Grandy's um, article. And her article is called, by the way, This Show Is Not About Race, Custom Screen Culture and the Black and White Minstrel Show. Um, and that quote is, As many of the signatories are no doubt new to this country, they will perhaps not be aware that blackface minstrels performing a song and dance act have been a traditional form of entertainment in the British Isles for a great many years. So, this idea that these signatories are new to the country, i.e. at the Windrush generation who have recently arrived, he's saying, you don't really know Britain, and we've been doing this. So take your, <laughs> your sensitivities and your offence to where you came from, basically. Basically Because we've been doing this here a long time, which is true. They had been doing it since around the 1830s, but didn't make it right. They've been doing slavery for even longer, and that wasn't okay anymore. But here we are. His kind of doubling down on the situation was, and it's just a phrase as many of the signatories are no doubt new to this country, they will not be aware. (laughs) Like, the audacity, oh, the audacity of it all. But anyway, it, you know, cards, protest, they were noted and they were responded to. And black people would have not liked the show. There's so many different accounts um, of black people that are in the public eye now or have been interviewed for a range of things in the archives that have said the kind of distaste that the show would have for them. It made them uncomfortable. Like, they're not even... It's not even like they're, like, acting as black characters. They're like, as in, you know, you're playing this black man called Thomas and this just happened to be played by a white person because blacking up your face was something done in, in film in Hollywood it, it was common especially then but this idea that it's just the white mouths and the white around the eyes and it doesn't even like they're black black they're they are shade black they are darkness they are, they are not brown like black people aren't actually black we're brown And they're not even brown. They're not even, like, accurately trying to, like, portray black people theatrically. It's just mocking. There's just no... I just don't see how anyone can see any other way around this, personally, for me. Um, And just upholding these stereotypes that have obviously come from America. That, again, they aren't understanding the history and the link there. um, And just continually churning out episode after episode, week after week. And unfortunately, it was someone like Lenny Henry that ended up on the show because black people themselves couldn't catch a break outside of a show. Um, you know, it was the black and white minstrel show that that was the only one that was giving them a kind of slot as comics or as, as part of it. Um, you know, people couldn't understand why black people would feel so badly about the programme. There's so many accounts um that christine grandy brings to light of people you know being told they're too touchy or you know it's an entertaining show it's an um honorable show you know why don't you like it um and so yeah it's quite hard then for card to kind of to push back because there is just this opinion that it's not offensive and it's white people that are telling black people that this is not offensive to them, by the way. So it's not black people saying, you know, it's not black people split, like, oh, yeah, it's not that bad. Although some might have thought that, you know, this is white people telling black people that they should not be offended because this is not racist. The show's popularity began to wane, um, especially in the 1970s. And the kind of creators and producers and people at the BBC began to realise Why um, it was causing offence and how it was causing offence just slowly over time. You might be thinking, well, why did it take them 20 years? But it took them 20 years, so what can we say? Um, But I've got two clips. I'll play the first one now. Um, Pray for the copyright. Um, But these are are taken from the BBC um, of people that were working on the shows, producers and so on, that kind of experienced first hand the way that it was impacting black people and then went on to, um, you know, stop, stop making it. We were rehearsing the show in the afternoon and the boys had their black makeup on. And in the lunch break, they all went up to the stage door, myself included, to get some air. And that stage door opened onto a little alleyway and across the other side of the alleyway, which was only about 20 feet, 15 to 20 feet, was a line of black people, the families. They were going into the cinema that was on the other side of this alley where the stage door was. And I saw the way they looked at these black faces and white mouths, and their faces somehow dropped and looked in bewilderment. Um, The look went right through me. And I suddenly felt, in my mind, this could have offended them. It was if they kind of finally realized that it was the views of black people that they should have been taken in to decide whether or not it was racist or offensive. We didn't really think much of it until we did a, a Royal Variety performance at the London Palladium. And it was in the early 70s or late 60s when Diana Ross and the Supremes were right at the top. And um, we're, we're doing a dress rehearsal and we're all in our makeup and everything, and we're all excited that Diana Ross and the Supremes—I mean, we were thrilled to be on the same bill. Of course, we all stood on the side of the stage and sat in the audience, and Diana Ross and the Supremes came on to do their rehearsal, and she spotted us, and refused to uh, carry on until we'd completely cleared the auditorium and the stage. And that might be my favourite story of the whole, entire. Podcast to ever exist. Diana Ross refusing to perform in front of these white people dressed up as black people doing blackface and minstrelsy. We love to see it, Diana Ross. Well done to you. Um, But there, it took something like that, you know. Royal Variety Show. They were huge. Do they happen anymore? Maybe because of COVID. I don't. Used to be the winner of like Britain's Got Talent that performed at the Royal Variety Show. I'm not making that up, am I? Um, Yeah, I haven't seen one of them in a while, but I, I don't really tap into that thing, that stuff so I don't see why I would. But anyway, really big deal, the Royal Variety Show. Diana Ross and the Supremes at their peak. And they say, we are not even going to rehearse if you are here in this auditorium dressed up mocking me as a black woman. As an African-American woman at that. She knew that history. She knew it. There was no disconnect in her brain. All the Supremes, they said no. And can you imagine your... You know, someone you look up to, you're not necessarily your idol, but a world class performer. And you're about to watch them because you just happen to be billed on the same program as them. And them saying what you do is literally so offensive. I don't even want to rehearse in front of you. The burn. Anyway, I'm leaving it there because what else can top that? Nothing. Diana Ross, this episode is for you because sensational moment. And if it brought down the end of the black and white minstrel show, then, you know, you can have credit for that, Diana Ross, because it's sensational. <laughs> sensational scenes. Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning into this episode this week. I hope you all have a wonderful week. Thank you for listening again. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to The History Hotline. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend to tell a friend. To continue the conversation about black history, head over to our social media platforms at The History Hotline on Instagram and at The History HL on Twitter.